Hello again, and welcome back to Nice to Know. I'm Dr. Robin Schenk, and this is the podcast where I chat to everyday scientists to find out about what they know. As promised, this week I'm bringing you the second part of my best of moments from season one. So a taster of my personal favorite clips from the episodes that I recorded in the last half of the season from last year. So if you are new to the podcast, I hope you'll get a feel for what this podcast is about, and maybe go back and listen to the full-length episodes. And same as last week, I have all the timestamps in the episode description if you would like to do that. There's also part one of Best One to listen to from last week, if you're interested in that. In general, this podcast is all about talking to scientists just about what they work on, but in an easy discussion rather than a full-on lecture. It's meant to be as if you were chatting to a scientist like at a bar and trying to understand what they work on. So without further ado, on with this episode. And then I hope if you enjoyed that, you'll be joining me for season two coming very, very soon. What would be, say, like the top three things that you have learned during your PhD? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Such a hard question. Um, I feel like I'm going to throw this back at you afterwards and ask you the same things. You can tell me whether you agree with me as well. So, like, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is, and this is really weird because it's, like, very specifically a scientist thing, but as you know, a lot of things in the lab fail. And when I started, I tied all my self-worth to my experiments and how things were going in the lab and how things were progressing. And I really had to learn... That when things go wrong, they're not always your fault. It doesn't reflect badly on you and you as a person. Just because your experiment didn't work doesn't make you a terrible, terrible scientist and a terrible, terrible person. And I just had to, like, really separate my identity from me as a scientist. Because I was like, I'm a scientist. I'm a PhD student. When things go wrong, like, my whole world blows up. So I really had to learn that the hard way. Yeah, that's a good one. I think a lot of people, especially because uh, you generally get people entering into PhDs that are very high achievers, and sometimes they're not used to not having perfection or success all the time. So yeah, it can be a real um, hurdle, I guess. So, Margs, you're a cancer researcher. Tell me, what is cancer? (laughs) What is cancer? Um, Well, cancer is a an umbrella term for hundreds of different diseases where generally the uh, the common trait um, of all of these diseases is uncontrolled division of cells where um, cells are normally in their place doing their job and they will sometimes divide and they will sometimes die uh, and these are all very normal processes but in in cancer the cells are sort of really clever in uh, their own proliferation so they will divide at the cost of the health of other tissues very very good answer thanks <laughs> and then how is a blood cancer uh, i'm trying to think how do i phrase this uh blood cancer sounds really weird do you th- do would you agree with that statement 
Yeah, I, I think so. And it's because there's no, often there's no actual solid tumour. We actually think of bloods as liquid tumours as opposed to solid tumours. And um, that's definitely a different consideration in how they progress and how they're treated. Um, and usually what happens is you have too many cells of a certain type in your blood or in your bone marrow or thymus or all these other places where you're in your body where your bone uh, where your blood cells sort of reside so in some ways it's kind of it's everywhere um, but that also makes it easier to treat sometimes because the blood is excess much more accessible than solid tumors from like i don't know which came first the tai chi or the drone the drone came first and i initially wanted to i initially wanted to use the drone as a public amenity kind of like in the foyer of a big building where they lived as um, animals, so to speak, like a more interactive version of a pigeon. I was about and to they would kind of fly <laughs> more down. More interactive and... version of a pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you look at how the public interacts with pigeons and there's like a, I feel like there's a longing there for, for a little bit more. Like they just run away. <laughs> I was going to say, I just run away from pigeons and they run away from me and it's fine, but... <laughs> Fine. But like, you know, there are some people who feed them. Could Would you want to pet them? Probably not. They're the rats of the sky. But yeah. there is, um, that was where the idea was. Like, can we have these drones kind of being the facilitators of um, interaction in public between friends, between strangers? I mean, that all seems wildly impossible now in a COVID era. But at the time, that was the, the, the gist. Um, but once I started flying them, like once I got them up in the air in the lab, and they were responding to the movements of my hands. Like I just literally programmed it to stay one meter away from the palm of my hand. There was definitely something meditative about what I was doing because I was using it. I was very lucky to be using a motion capture system, which is like what's used to record people's facial expressions in animation movies and what sports men and women to refine their technique. So it's extremely accurate. And the drone was very responsive. So small movements in my hands were being reflected in in the drone it was insane how meditative it was from the beginning so that just that was an easy jump to tai chi i was like i gotta go do tai chi lessons because there's so much to learn about about movement and and meditating while moving if you have a ballroom um there are lots of people in there and usually when people dance they interact i would say And so what uh, you could kind of say is that, that, you know, you dance with a person and then uh, you really like it or you don't like it. So you dance with them another turn and another turn or you just don't because it kind of feels weird. <laughs> um, and this is what you describe as affinity. Um, the same happens in, in proteins, like depending on how they are built, they like to interact with others or they don't at all. And this is a very good way to describe um, interaction. So you can imagine the cell like a, a ballroom where different proteins are dancing with each other. Some interact longer, some interact more shortly. Mm. Yeah. And we measure this by, by this proximity. So um, obviously, if we force proteins into proximity, we can see this effect. But what we are then interested in, we just take two proteins and we want to know whether they interact. And um, so we give them both these shiny proteins yeah and then we measure whether they actually interact and this we can do in within living cells which is obviously yeah quite cool people in prison 
often very clever and very bored with lots of time on their hands. And so they have found a way around this tobacco ban by creating their own cigarettes. So at first, when the nicotine patches were available, they were either rolling those up and smoking them, or they had a very clever way of sticking the patches to tea bags and then heating that up. And it somehow causes the nicotine to leach out of the patch into the tea bag, which is amazing. And then they would break open the tea bag, roll up the tea leaves and roll that up in Bible paper and smoke it. So this was all going on and there was also a bit of bullying happening over the patches. You know, a new guy would come in, he'd be given his course of patches and then the older guys would surround him and go, yeah, we'll be taking those. And yeah, so a bit of um, aggression and bullying happening. So the patches were stopped. But nicotine lozenges were still available for sale. So people were then buying a pack of lozenges, crushing them up, mixing those together with tea leaves and rolling that up in Bible paper and smoking those. So when I realized that this was happening, I added some questions into my survey to find out more about it. So um, about 60% of the people I spoke to had smoked tobacco while they were in prison. And I think it was 37% had been smoking it three or more times a week. So it was a pretty common practice. I think that is one of the things that as a historian, you're maybe a little bit more aware of these large developments or these long durée uh, developments. And one thing that is especially clear in today's world, uh, or the Western world in any case, is, is, um, is this uh, huge uh, nationalism. And is uh, you know we see it politically, but also in many other ways. I see it, for example, in 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 Belgium, in Flanders. There's this huge coming up of a lot of music and poetry and so on in dialect. Uh, so no longer the standard language, but very specific regional languages. And I think this is me as someone who studies this last phase of of Babylonian culture. It is very clear because it's also what was happening then. <laughs> So what you see in these ancient texts and these ancient like sources is that they kind of try to hold on very hard uh, to their rituals and they start writing things down, and they start writing history and they put names and things they never did before. They are putting so much emphasis and they find everything so important apparently. So it's kind of, because it's, it's, it's normal. If you're threatened, uh, you start like holding on to what you have. And I think it's certainly a thing that could, that is certainly, I mean, like the whole globalization and so on, it's certainly a player. And I think it does mean cultural change because the thing that we, when we say, you know, if you think about American politics and certain people saying, we have to go back to how America used to be. Well, <laughs> you're never going back. You're only going forward. That's the thing. There's no going back. So you're always going into something else, even though you're saying you're going to what it used to be. Mm. Um, and that means cultural change in a way to me. It's not any microbiota or microbiome. Um, it's specifically the gut microbiome, or that's what I'm more interested in. What's really cool about the microbiota is that they release, they basically eat everything that we eat. And when they consume the foods that we consume, they release tiny molecules that are really beneficial for us. Um, so the one that I look into is called short-chain fatty acids. Um, and these short-chain fatty acids, they are released by the microbiota through 
fermentation. So they ferment um, the carbohydrates that we eat or the fiber that we eat. And when they release these um, short-chain fatty acids, the short-chain fatty acids can act distally on other organs or they can act locally within the gut. So they can reduce inflammation, for example. Um, they can feed the, um, the cells that line the um, gastrointestinal tract. And then they can also go into the systemic circulation where they can, as I said, act on immune cells, for example, to reduce systemic inflammation. And we've actually found that they are very potent in reducing blood pressure. So, for example, if we feed an animal high fiber, we can look at the types of bacteria that release short-chain fatty acids and they have more of these bacteria. We can measure short-chain fatty acids in their feces and we can, I know that's a bit disgusting, in their feces, but also in their plasma and we can measure blood pressure and we can see that they have lower blood pressure. So it's very interrelated. As scientists, we've had really strong inklings as far back as the 70s and the 80s, but I think for me in the early 90s is when it really took hold. From our ice core work in Greenland in the GISP-2 and the GRIP ice cores, we learned that not only was climate changing, but climate in the history could change really fast. Um, we used to teach that climate would be something that changes on generational timescales really slow. And by understanding sort of the history of these changes on the earth, we knew that there was changes that were governed by orbital parameters and things that change really slowly. But the GIST-2 ice core really brought it home when we realized that there would be temperature changes in the record of the ice core on the order of six or seven degrees Celsius in less than a decade. Oh, wow. And what does that actually mean in terms of like, because uh, I remember, hmm, actually, I think two years ago, I participated in a climate march where we were like, you know, when everyone was like, we've got to keep it to below two degrees change because two degrees or more would be catastrophic. But seven degrees, what does that mean? Exactly. You put it in context perfectly. We're sweating bullets now over, is it one and a half? Is it two? Is it, you know, where can we constrain this temperature change? And six or seven degrees would be if you were raising crops in Northern Europe and trying to feed your family, next year you might not be able to do it. So it, it was, uh, yeah, it was an astonishing thing. This was about 11,000 years ago during what we call the Younger Dryas period. And what we learned is that when the climate changes between what we call a colder glacial period to an interglacial period, these changes are not gra necessarily gradual. There could be sort of like a flickering switch between these states. And that instability is what makes us nervous. That is that there are thresholds or tipping points that are in the climate system that are nonlinear. That is, you can push and push and you don't see a resultant change from that little incremental push until all of a sudden, big change. And that's, that's what keeps us awake at night. So if you enjoyed that, please do go back and listen to the previous episodes and subscribe yourself for the upcoming season two of Nice to Know. 
Already, I have prepared some really cool conversations with some super interesting scientists and researchers. This time around, I've got some mathematicians, I have a plant biologist, a parasitologist, a biological psychiatrist, an anthropology slash sociology researcher, as well as I'm planning some monologues to do with COVID and vaccines based on what I know, being an immunologist. So really, it's going to be a very jam-packed, fun, interesting season to join in for. And as usual, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Robin Sciences. That's Robin with a Y and the plural of science. I'm now joining Instagram as well. That's at Nice to Know a Podcast. Uh, and I'm mainly going to be using that to feature, as I always do on Twitter, what scientists really look like. So each of my guests will have a little feature on there. And you can also email me at nice to know the podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and look forward to you joining me in season two. Thank you.